Welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path, a podcast where we've set out to bust the myth that physicians can't venture outside the traditional clinical and research career path. We plan to do this by chatting with physicians who've done amazing work in a diverse range of careers, whether in consulting, investing, as an entrepreneur, a writer, and many more. We really do hope to explore it all. While we hope to reach a broad audience, we will often speak directly to medical students, residents, fellows, and young attendings, and to any clinician who has ever wondered about a non-traditional career path. We want you to know that there are many career paths available to you and that there are many ways to become successful. Before we get started, let's do some quick introductions. So my name is Dr. Shadabul Faraz, but I go by Shad. I'm an MD, a writer, and a Harvard MBA student interested in healthcare consulting and investing. And my name is Dr. Alexi Youssef, and I go by Alex. I am an MD pursuing an Oxford Clinical Artificial Intelligence PhD degree, along with an MBA at Harvard Business School. I'm interested in healthcare investing and entrepreneurship. Today is our first installment of our Physician Investor Series. We'll be talking to Dr. Dan Gabriel-Medin, who currently is a partner at Flare Capital, a venture capital firm. So Shad, what exactly does a venture capital firm do? That's a great question, Alex. So for those who may not know, a venture capital firm, or a VC firm as it's called, takes capital, aka money, but it can be also time and resources, and invests in startups and early stage companies. Some VC firms invest broadly, but others like Flare Capital, where our guest works, focuses on certain industries like the healthcare technology industry. The money deployed by these firms are raised from various sources, including pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, university endowments, or high net worth individuals. The VC firm pools this money into a fund and then deploys it into various ventures, hoping to one day make significant returns if and when that startup prospers. The work involves a deep understanding of industry trends, financial modeling, and being plugged into the entrepreneurial community. Chad, love the summary. It reminds me of a great article in Harvard Business Review that describes VC as, the entrepreneur is the modern day cowboy roaming new industrial frontiers much the same way that earlier Americans explored the West. At his side stands the venture capitalist, a trail-wise sidekick ready to help the hero through all the tight spots in exchange, of course, for a piece of the action. So as we've mentioned, our guest, Dan, is a partner at Flare Capital Partners, where he has led investments into and sits on the board of Somatis, Eden Health, and Votive Health. Dan was a practicing internal medicine physician at the Massachusetts General Hospital and an instructor at Harvard Medical School until 2019. He has also been an entrepreneur and a senior health policy advisor to several politicians. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So to start things off, Dan, just wanted to get a bit of history about your past life. So just to put things into perspective for our listeners, can you give us a little bit of a summary of your early life story and and how and why you decided to go to medical school? Uh, Sure. Uh, So, you know, the child of uh, Ethiopian immigrants, I was born uh, in San Diego. You know, I kind of joke that I was kind of brainwashed into wanting to become a physician because, you know, both of my parents, when they came to this country, they wanted to become doctors, but they couldn't do it. Uh, I really liked biology. I liked to understand how how the body worked, how things worked uh, and liked helping people. And so that was, you know, the basic calculus of, of why 
you know, I was pre-med and undergrad, um, you know, went to medical school at the Morehouse School of Medicine. And, you know, I'll just, you know, kind of quick, you know, tee it up that I, like many physicians, because it's such a long road, you kind of put your head down and you get it done and you finish. Uh, but then, you know, when you finish, you kind of pick your head up and like, well, what do I really want to do, you know, with my life? And I think we all have just limited experiences. Uh, and again, I think that, you know, all the way through kind of high school, you know, volunteered at the local community hospital as a candy striper. When I was an undergrad, you know, I, I worked in, in a basic science research lab. And these are all things that I was told that you need to do in order to get into medical school. Um, and, you know, then when I was in medical school, and we'll probably tee into this, you kind of start to kind of see what the actual practice of medicine uh, is, what it looks like. And again, I didn't really have any physicians, you know, in my family. It wasn't something that I was exposed to. And it's something that I had to learn uh, and get exposed to on my own. Uh, and that ultimately uh, laid the foundation for the things that I would explore going forward. That's perfect. Thanks for that background, Dan. You know, that sort of segues into our next question. So when and how did you know that you weren't going to have a traditional clinical or research career in medicine? When I was in um, undergrad, I, I did well on the MCAT. And so I was an MCAT tutor for the Princeton Review. When I got to medical school, I was still doing kind of MCAT, you know, tutoring on the side to make a little bit of extra money. And at my medical school, I went to the Morehouse School of Medicine, um, which has a mission uh, to, you know, kind of enroll and train uh, students from kind of underrepresented backgrounds. And students from underrepresented, you know, kind of minority backgrounds, um, you know, kind of tend to not do as well on, you know, these kind of medical standardized tests. And this was kind of the the mantra that they had kind of told us, you know, when we were, you know, about to take, you know, the, the step one board exams in medical school, and none of us really liked that concept. And so in many ways, you know, I was kind of, you know, class president, I kind of marshaled a lot of students to come up with a best practices method uh, to do well on, on the step one exam. Uh, we did really well on the step one exam, and I continued to get invited while I was in medical school to travel to medical school conferences to talk about uh, how to do well on this exam. Uh, and, you know, lo and behold, within a few years, uh, I met another physician who said, you know, you should stop um, just going around giving, you know, free talks. You should monetize it. <laughs> you should start an online course. Uh, and that kind of was my first startup. It was this online education company uh, focused on test preparation uh, for medical students. And I don't think that, you know, when I went to medical school, I, was like, oh, I want to be an entrepreneur. That wasn't my goal. But I saw a problem did my best to kind of put together, you know, a set of solutions to solve that problem and then ultimately wanted to become sustainable, right? Because my time was extremely valuable, increasingly valuable and, you know, wanted to hire people to kind of fund the online education to be able to scale uh, the program. And so that was, I think, the first inclination that, hey, I kind of like this business thing. You know, I when I was in, in medical school, you know, I flagged I was student body president. I got to sit on the board of trustees. And so here I'm at this board table, you know, as a student representative with all these kind of leaders of healthcare industry. And again, it was just really a moment in time. The future Surgeon General, Regina Benjamin, was on the board. The future uh, Attorney General, Eric Holder, was on that board. And Tony Walters, you know, really uh, you know, kind of talented uh, executive at United was on that board. And so when I looked at all these people, you know, many of them were physicians, all of them had MBAs. And I was like, OK, I, I want to be like these guys and gals when I grow up. I got to get an MBA. Uh, and so I didn't really have it that well defined, but knew at the very least, I probably didn't just want to practice kind of clinical medicine on a one-to-one -one basis. I really liked dealing with systems issues, right? I think, you know, on the board of trustees of the medical school, we were talking about our teaching hospital 
and how you know kind of patient volumes were fluctuating, budgets were were challenged, and they were just brainstorming kind of big picture ways to improve you know the overall success of the organization. And it was that kind of big picture thinking uh, and strategy that I really loved. And so I think it was that was the first inclination that hey, when I go to residency. I, I might want to get an MBA along the way, but again, it was still still very early and, and largely informed. Perfect. So it sounds like in many ways it sort of wasn't planned from the very beginning, but you sort of navigated the world as many of us try to do and, and just made the right decisions at the right time. And so uh, you talked about this a little bit, but uh, as we talked about, you practice internal medicine for many years, but you also managed to co-found a health IT software firm. You wrote a book. And now you do venture capital investing at the highest level. So can you give our audience some tips, maybe to those who are practicing right now or about to start practicing? How does one get started on a non-traditional path? And, and how do you end up balancing clinical and non-clinical interests down the line? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, a good set of questions. There, there were a handful there. You know, one of the things that you'd flagged, uh, and, I'll, and I'll rephrase it, is that my path was, you know, emergent and not deliberate. Right. And that phrase kind of comes from uh, Clayton Christensen, you know, Harvard Business School professor who wrote a book about how you measure your life. And he just kind of talks about, you know, following your passion and following your purpose. And so that's kind of how I've always thought about it, that ultimately I will be most successful in areas where I'm willing to put, you know, 110 uh, percent of my energy. Um, I can tell you when I was in residency at Mass General Hospital, you know, perhaps some of the smartest minds. Uh, in medicine, and I'm working alongside of these people. I, I clearly belong there, and you know, clearly was academically, you know, prepared to do well there. But you know, we would spend you know 12 hours a day on the wards, uh, and we would all go home. And you know, the joke I have is that everybody in medicine has a side hustle, things that they do on the side. And when I, my 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 peers would go home, they would go do more medicine, they would go do more clinical research, whereas I was going home and I was like reading about business books. I was you know, trying to do these startups. And I realized that, hey, maybe that's kind of where my passion lies. And can I bring the two together? Um, I kind of joke that I've had three careers. I'm kind of on my third career now. And so I've tried a lot of different things. But I do think my, you know, kind of true north has been, you know, kind of find areas where my passion and kind of purpose align. But, you know, candidly, I mean, at the end of the day, these things are all jobs, right? You need to be able to, uh, you know, kind of generate an income, you know, kind of support yourself and your family. And so that is another vector, right, upon which, um, you know, that I, I think about, you know, how am I kind of getting a return on the investment of my time, which, you know, early in my career, my time is my most valuable asset. Uh, and so I think you have to kind of just be very mindful. And so, you know, I'll pause there. Uh, but at the highest level, I think that's kind of my orientation on how I think about what I, what I choose to do next. That sounds great. Just switching gears here a little bit, wanted to talk little bit more about the future of medicine and specifically the future of MDs, because at the end of the day, we are called physicians of the beaten path. So we want to see where, you know, what interesting side hustles, what interesting things that uh, doctors can do down the line. And so with increasing disruption in healthcare and, and, you know, further decentralization of care away from specialists and from costly venues like hospitals, and I know the VC world is very involved in this space uh, as well. You know, how do you think medical training is going to change down the line and what's it going to look like in the future? And what really will be the role of an MD, both within clinical medicine, but maybe outside of it as well in this new world? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I, I would say that for the longest time, clinicians did not have a seat at the table uh, when business decisions were being made, right? For the longest time. And I think I remember when I was 
kind of going through residency there. That was the big cry. We need to have more physician leaders in the hospital. <laughs> I would argue that, um, you know, the hospital is just a small part of the healthcare system. And candidly, it's a decreasing part of the, the, the broader healthcare system as healthcare is moving into the community. I think most medical schools are built out of uh, some large academic medical center. Um, and so they have this very academic medical center, ivory tower kind of view of the world that has a certain dogma. And candidly, you know, again, I, I spent half of my life in academic medical centers. I spent 10 years practicing at the Mass General uh, Hospital, and they do a lot of things really, really well. But in general, you know, the time and now I've since uh, spent about eight years outside academic medical center kind of orthodoxy. Uh, you know, spent two years at Harvard Business School. Um, I spent two years at a health plan after business school. So I worked full time at a health plan while practicing as a doc part time and then six years, you know, in venture capital since then. And I might argue that academic medical centers uh, may be great, um, you know, kind of sources of like science based uh, innovation, but not practice innovation, not delivery innovation. I think a lot of that is happening, reimbursement innovation. I think a lot of that's happening outside of the academic medical center. And my, my hope is that medical schools uh, will maybe bring some of this, you know, to the education phases. Um, you know, and I know some, some medical schools are good at this, right? You know, kind of bringing in people from the health policy world. I think you're starting to kind of see people from the entrepreneurial world kind of come in. But I would say that in many ways, you know, we use this phrase ivory tower. In many ways, physicians are taught to believe outside entities impacting healthcare the phrase you use is the dark side, right? So like there's various dark sides, you know, for the doctors, you know, re refer to. So the first one that I went to work for was the payer. Like the payer was the dark side. Like when people, you know, I never wanted to work at a payer. Like growing up, you know, in the world of medicine, I was like, oh, that insurance companies are evil. And I worked at one for two years and I can guarantee you they are not evil, right? But they do have their own, um, you know, kind of set of, of incentives, their own, you know, imperatives, their own fiduciary responsibilities that they have to, you know, kind of report to either their shareholders or, or their board of directors. And, and that will inform how they do what they do. And, and, and from the outside looking in, people can see them as kind of, you know, kind of having negative incentives. But, you know, again, uh, as a medical director there uh, who was responsible, you know, de facto for about 200,000 beneficiaries, you know, we always tried to operate by the letter of evidence, evidence-based medicine. Uh, and what we'll always tried to do what was best for patients and best for our overall healthcare system. You know, the other dark side is finance, right? So I've been on the world of venture capital uh, now for six years. And again, it's an area that, you know, has been vilified, you know, by by clinicians and, you know, just broader, not, not even just clinicians, just people in the healthcare industry. And again, you know, every venture firm is going to be different. Uh, but I know at Flare Capital, most of our capital comes from healthcare entities, right? It comes from large, uh, you know, provider systems. It comes from, you know, large insurance uh, kind of corporations, and we know how they operate. Again, same concept, operating you know by the letter of evidence-based medicine and trying to do what's best for patients and improve the overall healthcare system. But at the same time, I think it's important to have that lens of sustainability, right? That whatever you're doing, the, the phrase is you know margin funds the mission. Like you have to kind of keep this thing in business in order to kind of fulfill your mission. And I do think that sometimes you know kind of the traditional orthodoxy. Uh, you know, academic medical centers, you know, tend not to have the same, you know, kind of financial pressure uh, because they get funded in a number of different ways. Like their business operations alone, you know, um, usually it's unlikely uh, for them to kind of stay in, in business, right? They have to kind of have 
grant funding. They have to have, uh, you know, philanthropic funding to kind of keep the lights on. You know, in the in the quote unquote private sector, you don't have that luxury. Um, and so, you know, it's all about, you know, kind of managing financial operations uh, on a regular basis, because otherwise you, you can't stay in business. You can't ultimately, you know, kind of fulfill whatever your mission is. It's very insightful, Dan. And I really appreciated you bringing up the dynamics between physicians and everyone else in the healthcare world. And, and the fact that, you know, a lot of physicians, especially those uh, still working in traditional careers, don't realize that uh, hospital care is a very thin slice of healthcare. And some of the dynamics that you talked about, you mentioned Clay Christensen in the past, his book, The Innovator's Prescription in 2008, which he actually co-wrote with an MD, Dr. Huang. Uh, it's a great book and goes into some of these dynamics. And also Michael Porter's book, Redefining Healthcare, back in 2006, is also a great book for, uh, I think, physicians to read. Sort of switching gears here a little bit, I wanted to talk about your investing thesis and, and how you think about investing. So in an interview last year with uh, the University of Rochester's Center for Health and Technology, you talked about investing in virtual primary care, so Eden Health. Uh, this was back in February 2020 which was less than a month before COVID-19 became a fully-fledged uh, global pandemic. So as a venture investor with a clinical background, how do you spot these opportunities and how do you think about actually investing in these companies? Yeah, no, like I said, you guys you guys have done very good research. Um, like I, I vaguely remember that interview. Um, so I would say that my investment thesis in a nutshell, um, so, so just to back up, many, you guys are probably familiar with the concept of the triple aim uh, you know, Don Berwick and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, it, it's the goals of, of, of our optimally performing healthcare system, you know, three goals. And people have said there's a quadruple uh, aim as well. But, you know, to reduce overall healthcare costs, uh, to improve quality outcomes, uh, and to improve patient satisfaction. Uh, and I would say also engagement, you know, the quadruple, the fourth aim could, you know, providers and clinicians in, increasing their, you know, engagement and satisfaction. So my, my tongue-in-cheek in uh, investment thesis is, is the reverse triple aim. So I'm looking for areas where costs are high, outcomes are poor, and patients are unhappy uh, and not engaged. And so, you know, again, I think primary care uh, and employer healthcare, candidly, is an area where those, uh, those factors certainly apply. I think it's always, um, you know, great to be good, but sometimes it's good to be lucky. Uh, you know, specifically Eden Health, um, which is a company that I knew going back to 2016. I knew the founder uh, met with him early on when he was raising his seed, you know, a, a younger guy, but had this big idea around near site on site primary care for employers, because you see this large discrepancy where employers pay for a lot of uh, the healthcare for employees in the United States, but they aren't really doing much to impact that healthcare. They may not necessarily be getting a return on investment. Uh, and as much as insurance companies talk about how they help employers, um, you know, manage healthcare costs, you know, at this at a certain level, especially at a certain uh, employer size level, when you look at employers, smaller employers in the you know hundreds and thousands of employees, not the hundred thousand, two hundred thousand jumbo employers, the insurance companies don't pay any attention to them, candidly. Uh, and so they don't they don't get great solutions. And so he had this thesis that these guys. These entities are underserviced and under-resourced. I am going to create this concept of primary care that's close and convenient to them, this near-site, on-site clinic. We're also investors in another business, uh, clinic business called Iora Health, uh, and they had kind of gone through the journey of, of trying to do a lot of near-site, on-site clinics uh, for employers, and it's a really tough business. So back in 2016, when I saw this like 25, 26-year-old guy you know, trying to run this business, I'm like, oh, man, 
this is tough business. You're smart, but you might be over and over, over your head. <laughs> you know, as a venture investor, you have to, over time, I think, develop conviction. And I think oftentimes you just have to see a few cycles. You have to kind of meet people, hear what they say they're going to do, check back in two years and see if they did what they said that they were going to do. And so that was the case with, with this entrepreneur, Matt McCambridge. I met him, you know, again, three, two to three years later, he did exactly what he said he was going to do. Uh, I think he had three clinics. Uh, I think he had 30 employer customers. Um, and he was telling a story, and this is 2019. He was already telling a story about virtual primary care. He said, yes, you know, phase one was near site on site, but the future is that, you know, roughly 80% of all things don't need to be done in office. All they are done in office, they, they, they can be done virtually. And I want to combine that with not just virtual primary care and telehealth, but navigation. Because the healthcare system is so hard to navigate, everybody deserves a concierge that will help walk them through uh, the healthcare system to do a lot of the administrative uh, activities that we all struggle with, clinicians included. And so he was telling that story back in 2019, and I was sold. Um, you know, another shout out that I'll make uh, to another physician, you know, uh, entrepreneur uh, is uh, Tom Lee, uh, who was the founder of One Medical and then the founder of Galileo. Uh, and I met, you know, Tom Lee on his Galileo journey. And I think he was the first one, you know, that talked about virtual primary care. And I was very skeptical as a former primary care clinician. I, I do think physicians can be defensive, you know, something as hallowed as primary care can't be virtualized, right? It's, it is the center of, of medicine. It's, it's everything that we do. And, you know, Tom Lee is this guy who sees around corners. He's like, no, that's not true. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's about meeting the patient where they are. Uh, and as long as you give them access, they're going to, you know, they're, they're going to access in the way that is best for them. You, we shouldn't be so paternalistic that you have to get healthcare in, in this way or that. Um, and so I, I was primed to receive the concept about virtual primary care. And then Matt brought it home and he didn't help. Was, you know, the near site, on site, virtual primary care navigation. He was telling this story in 2019. We did most of our work in 2019. We closed the deal, as you flagged, right before the pandemic. And so I can tell you, again, you know, I, I'm a you know, transparent guy. I didn't make the investment because of virtual primary care. I made the investment about near-site, on-site, employer care playing a larger role. And what I thought the virtual primary care would just be a differentiator, right? Because there were a lot of near-site, on-site clinics. And candidly, from a private equity perspective, these companies, these near-site, on-site employer clinics were getting a lot of traction. Oh, that's what I was chasing, right? But I was like, ah, I think this virtual primary care is going to make it different. It's going to be special. No one saw the pandemic coming. Uh, and maybe another final story about the way that investors do diligence. You know, oftentimes, you know, it pays to be skeptical in the world of venture capital because most things fail, right? And so, yes, you, you certainly want to make the bull case why I think this is going to work. Market is big, team is great, product is well positioned. But then I think the best diligence is like, well, how is this going to fail? And one of the aspects of Eden Health's business model is that they work with uh, real estate groups. Um, they essentially work with groups that have these large office parks, right? And a bunch of employers. And so they'll kind of sell the real estate group and then they'll have this as a great, uh, you know, amenity uh, for their uh, employer tenants. And so because it was in this amenity space, one of the risks we saw, you know, especially in real estate is like, what if there's an economic downturn? If there's an economic downturn, you know, real estate prices drop, are they going to kind of kick this out? Uh, and when we talked to some of the real estate groups, uh, they basically said, well, it all depends. Uh, if people really, really like this and use it at a high level, you know, the entire economy is going to crash. 
but we're not going to rip something out of their hands that they're using, you know, on a daily basis. Uh, and Eden Health, you know, at the time that we made the investment and, and still to this day, they have like two thirds of engagement. So two thirds of Eden Health, uh, you know, kind of beneficiaries, employees that have access to their service use it. And so that's how we got comfortable. And guess what? There was a big economic downturn, <laughs> not in the way that we thought was going to happen. Uh, and again, you know, the role of virtual care, uh, you know, played so prominently. And so Eden, you know, kind of slightly, you know, evolved their business model in the sense that um, they were now in the business of managing employers through COVID. And again, it was a very nimble team. And they just, again, the product was there, but, you know, it wasn't just virtual, you know, kind of colds and things like that. It was, hey, like, we have a pandemic and like, how can we make sure that all of our employees uh, are safe? Uh, and if they are sick, like, how do we navigate them uh, to the right, um, you know, kind of healthcare uh, resources? So, so that was the story there. Thank you, Dan, for that story. There's, there's a lot to unpack there. You know, we'll continue the discussion with Alex. He had a few questions about investing for you. Thank you, Shad. And uh, thank you so much, Dan, for sharing these insights. And it feels that so much of the role of a venture capitalist is actually building that mental model around basically like what could be the, the good investment and what could be a bad investment. And so following up on that, I'm doing my PhD in clinical artificial intelligence, and I cannot but smuggle in a question about that, given your extensive expertise in the informatics space. So Google has recently launched Derm Assist to use AI in diagnostic skin conditions. Telemedicine and digital health are on the rise, as you've explained, and clinical AI is gaining significant traction. So I'm, I'm really curious to know your thoughts about how you see AI changing the practice of medicine in the next five years, and how can physicians and physicians-to-be play a role in that transformative trend? Uh, great question. Um, so you mentioned Google's Derm Assist. I have to give a plug to one of our portfolio companies, LumenDX, <laughs> which is doing very similar things and using AI to you know, diagnose uh, skin conditions. But really, uh, it's about access, right? At the end of the day, I think that's the power of technology, right? You know, can you automate uh, a lot of, you know, rote processes that otherwise would have required a human uh, and be high cost. And can you bring the cost down dramatically and democratize access? Uh, in this case, if we're talking about uh, diagnosing skin conditions, but, you know, it is a, uh, it is a wide set of wide ranging applications. But taking a step back and, and just kind of think, at least my perspective uh, as a clinician uh, investor and how I think about the world. When I, when I flagged that, oh, quote unquote, when I came over as a physician, I stopped practicing just about two years ago. Uh, and that was just, a, that was a, a tough, uh, you know, mental time for me in terms of where I was, you know, just kind of assessing what is my value to the world? What, what, what is my role? What's my purpose? Um, and what I told myself why I was okay with, um, you know, stopping my, my practice was that at the end of the day, you know, I, it, it wasn't necessarily that I needed to be a physician and I needed to treat patients. I didn't need to prescribe things. I needed to have impact, right? And so I had to convince myself that as an investor, I could still have impact. Uh, and so if you look at all of the businesses that I've invested in, I, I really do feel that they are solving some of the biggest problems uh, in healthcare uh, and they are creating a lot of impact. And so when I look at an investment opportunity, I'm not thinking about the technology candidate, Right. I'm thinking about the unsolved problems and how can this solution, whatever type of tech it is, or it could even just be services, but I would argue in this day, you know, everything's tech-enabled services, uh, what impact will it have? And I'll say, I've been through a few cycles of investing now. I can remember when we launched our fund and when I joined our fund back in 2015, 2016, AI was all the rage. Everyone was super excited about AI and healthcare. 
uh, and digital health, that, that term was just coined. So many people were piling dollars into these AI startups and many of, most of them failed. Like none of them got real traction because it was really, you know, and, and we've seen a few cycles of this and, you know, like you could argue blockchain went through a similar craze a few years. We, we, we put some money in some of these blockchain companies, but, you know, it was like technology looking for a problem to solve. Right. And so, yeah, I would say the next wave um, of AI and automation, I think, you know, people are going to be a little bit smarter this time and, and they're going to be very focused on what is the impact of this technology? Um, you know, can I draw a straight line to what the technology does to uh, the economic value uh, that is created by the solution, whether it's uh, for the enterprise that is buying the solution or for the consumer? Uh, that is buying the solution. I think that clear line of sight to ROI, I think in, you know, digital health 2.0 and AI and healthcare 2.0, I think will be how major operators will, will orient in the system. That is fantastic insight. And it, it really reminds me of the Gartner cycle of hype, where we have a peak of inflated expectations, and then we have the trough of disillusion, and then basically we reach the plateau of pr productivity. So ho hopefully that would be our plateau there. So if I may now shift gears a little bit to um, health policy. And so, you, Dan, you've been involved as a health policy advisor to politicians, including serving on Charlie Baker's board of nursing home directors. How have those opportunities surfaced and why has policy work been important to you? Uh, I might, you know, use the start with the second question first. Um, you know, I, I do think, as I flagged before, it, it's all been about impact uh, for me. And I think I remember, you know, as a resident, uh, as a hospitalist on the front lines working overnight shifts at Mass General, you see so much wrong with our system. You know, when I worked at the payer, uh, you know, for two years, you know, in many ways, it was kind of like the tail wagging the dog where, you know, some government entity would create some policy and then the payer would have to jump to implement that policy when we kind of fundamentally didn't necessarily believe in it, but we had to do it. Um, and so I've always thought there was just a big opportunity just to improve our healthcare system. And I do think that policy um, is able to do that across uh, across systems as opposed to just individually within you know a group of patients or, or one organization. Um, how have I gotten into healthcare policy? Again, you know, back to what we talked about earlier, it was emergent and not deliberate. I didn't go door-to-door -door knocking campaigns. I want to go work for them. You know, the first campaign that I worked on, you know, Joe Kenny III, uh, one of my classmates was the policy director. And, you know, he had a need. He said, hey, you know, like, you know, Joe needs help on, you know, this health policy paper. Do you want to help help, help write it? Uh, and, and that's what I did. And, you know, again, you know, did a bunch of research and, and you know, kind of wrote something, you know, kind of in his voice. Uh, and then uh, I worked at Harvard Pilgrim, uh, where Charlie Baker, the future governor, was the CEO for several years, had met Charlie a few times. And when he was on the campaign trail, he had kind of heard about my background and said, hey, we'd, we'd love to have you, uh, you know, kind of help out. And again, I just believed in his kind of market facing, very moderate, he's a Republican, very moderate uh, approach uh, to solving issues. And again, it was just a great experience. And oftentimes it's uh, you know, a lot of fire drills. Uh, you are tend to be responding uh, to kind of you know near term demands, but I do think there's a big opportunity to take a you know kind of a, a big picture view on what can be improved. Uh, but again, it's politics, right? And so I think ultimately you're going to have constituents who have needs that are going to be top of mind. And I think you know the opportunity for policy and physicians and especially business oriented physicians to play a role um, is to do so responsibly, right? Uh, and again, I think that's 
what I've enjoyed the most is to, you know, kind of provide insight, you know, just to be a voice at the table uh, to ensure that, you know, when policymakers are making decisions that they've considered all of, uh, you know, the different perspectives and viewpoints and make decisions responsibly. And again, you may not always be happy with the decisions that they make, because ultimately, at the end of the day, politicians, politicians have constituents uh, that, you know, stakeholders and, and candidly special interests um, that, that all want their voice, you know, heard. But, you know, you just want to make sure that everybody's making these decisions responsibly because, you know, they, they will affect millions of people. And so hopefully any, any policies that I've been a part of, you know, have been a net benefit uh, to, to the system. Thank you, Dan. So if I may now shift gears to a question about one of your previous talks, the five paths and pitfalls to success. You've mentioned there a story in which a school counselor who discouraged you from a career in medicine because it was so competitive. So I was wondering how often did you hear things like this along your non-traditional path? And do you still hear things like this today? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. You know, I, I think that you know, how often, you know, because I've, I've done like, you know, kind of three career switches over the years, it, it does seem that uh, whenever you do something new um, and, you know, there aren't a lot of very tangible, very safe uh, examples of how people have done it, uh, just people are, are naturally risk averse. You know, I think uh, physicians are naturally uh, risk averse uh, people, you know, again, you know, kind of going back to college because, you know, again, hard to know, you know, what was in the mindset of that, that school counselor, but, you know, because, you know, maybe had like a, you know, a rocky time over a set of few classes, or, you know, I didn't look like somebody who, um, you know, would go to medical school. Um, you know, she said what she said. Uh, but yeah, whenever you're going to do something new, there's always going to be naysayers, right? They're always going to, and even people in your own family, right? Even people who love you and care about you because they quote unquote, want the best for you. Oftentimes they want you to kind of play it safe. Uh, and so I do think, you know, anytime you try to do something new, uh, I think you should certainly gather perspectives of people who you respect, uh, candidly try to find people who have done what you want to do. And I think those people might have the most tangible advice uh, to give you. But, you know, advice often is free oftentimes. So people you know, don't think twice about giving it. But, you know, again, I think you should talk to people. Uh, but at the same time, you're going to have to go with your gut. Uh, and I think, you know, the longer I've been in my career, the more I listen to my gut. Uh, but early on in your career, I mean, you just you just don't have enough experiences. You don't have enough cycles. You know, we joke in, in, in venture. You know, it's like you need to see the movie before. Right. And so it can be tough when you're when you're early on in your career. And so, you know, I think that's why uh, mentorship, uh, you know, and, and finding, you know, kind of peers who you look up to, I think, can be super, super valuable uh, as you continue on in your professional journey. Thank you for sharing that, Dan. And actually, my next question was around what would be your advice to physicians who want to venture out and have been discouraged? And you've provided such amazing advice. So thank you for that. I guess one last question is, how can our listeners learn more about you or follow some of the work that you do? Well, I guess the easy one is follow me on Twitter, uh, LinkedIn. Um, you know, we uh, Flare Capital is a firm that, that I work at, and you know we uh, uh, are doing a lot of really interesting things in and around the healthcare industry. Again, I when I finished residency, finished business school, and was looking for a job, there were not a lot of options. Right, this is 2012, 2013. Um, I could either go to the hospital or I could go to an insurance company. Right, you know, fast forward eight years, there are just so many opportunities. 
to participate in the innovation of healthcare. I mean, the digital in- health industry and health tech industry has boomed. Uh, you know, 2012, 2013, there was about a, a billion dollars invested uh, in health tech on an annual basis. Uh, I think in this year, it'll be about $20 billion, right? And, you know, we've got, you know, 20, 25 active companies out there hiring people left and right. Um, you know, candidly, not m- most of those roles are not physician roles, right? Uh, maybe that's a whole nother topic for another podcast. How could, as a physician, how you get a business job? But there are a lot of opportunities at the very least to learn about, you know, the innovation that is happening in our healthcare system. And so, you know, follow Flare Capital uh, and all the companies, uh, you know, that we work on. And, you know, again, hopefully we'll cross paths with some of our listeners at some point in the future in, in one of our, you know, healthcare ventures. Uh, but, you know, and it's great for you guys. Uh, you guys are doing a lot of great, you know, evangelist work here, um, kind of spreading the message and you guys are giving people a path where, you know, can't that there wasn't one before. Dan, this is amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today. Really, really enjoyed having you as a guest with us and learning about your insights and journey. So thanks for that again. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you, Dan. Truth be told, this was supposed to be for our listeners, but you know, I was writing down notes frantically for myself just because it, this is stuff that we're all interested in and it was so, so helpful. So again, we really appreciate it and we appreciate you taking the time to be our first guest. Hey, my pleasure. Keep up the great work. Wow, what a great conversation, Alex, uh, that was with Dan. You know, I really learned a lot from his uh, various insights, and he's such an accomplished person. And he's done so much in his relatively you know, young career that it's actually very inspiring. There's two things that I really took away from uh, what he talked about. The first one was the fact that he had a relatively traditional path early on in his life. He talked about how he was the son of Ethiopian immigrants. His parents wanted to be doctors, but they couldn't. Uh, And so he was smart. He was hardworking. And so he ended up going to medical school. Uh, It didn't sound like he was one of those folks who, you know, in high school or college uh, started, you know, two, three different companies. And so what that really told me is that it's never too late to start. Um, He used this quote, which I thought was very, very interesting. Uh, It's uh, emerging, but not deliberate. And what that essentially means is that he never went out seeking particular opportunities. He just lived his life and did what he could, as he said, uh, put 110% of effort towards. And the opportunity sort of came his way and he adapted accordingly. And, And I thought that was a very, very good headspace, a very good mindset to uh, to employ as uh, as younger physicians and physicians who are looking to maybe venture off the beaten path. Um, the second insight that I thought was very interesting is that he talked about how hospitals are a relatively small part of uh, the healthcare system. Uh, you know, in terms of actual dollar costs, it tends to be around you know, 30, 35% of uh, total dollar costs of, of American healthcare. That is a lot, but keep in mind that uh, in the venture world, there's this big push right now to actually decentralize healthcare away from hospitals towards uh, urgent cares, towards uh, patients' homes. Uh, there's also um, an effort to sort of uh, disrupt specialists and move towards primary care doctors or NPs, PAs, and, you know, technicians. And it's going to be beneficial for MDs down the line to actually have a broader sense of what American healthcare is and not just uh, wholly focus on the hospital system. And so go out there and learn more about the different players in American healthcare. Start reading about the business side of healthcare. I think that advice really shone through in what uh, Dan was saying uh, during our interview. So I really appreciated those two insights from him. What about you, Alex? Chad, those are great insights. And I think it was an amazing interview with Dan. I guess building on your second point, what was really interesting to me is this 
in-group, out-group dynamic that he explained around basically physicians looking at insurance providers or, for example, VCs as out-group entities. And basically, uh, maybe they look at them as the dark side and they don't really understand fully how the operations of these organizations function and how important these organizations are while functioning healthcare systems. So I think it would be really interesting to uh, try to identify when one is falling in this in-group, out-group dynamic trap, perhaps, and trying to go and actively seek to understand the function of the insurance company or the function of the VC and how it really plays a role in in creating new innovations in the system. So I think that was a very valuable insight. The other insight that he mentioned is around the role of role models in his life. So, for example, he mentioned a very important story in which he he was inspired to pursue an MBA after he saw these MDs with MBAs on the board of his school. And I think he also mentioned the importance of seeking advice from people who have already been on that particular journey. And I think this this ties really nicely to what we are hoping to achieve with Physicians of the Beaten Path. We're hoping to shine light on the physicians that have ventured outside the traditional career path so that they can share their true and sincere experiences with our audience. And hopefully our audience can learn more about these non-traditional journeys and, and get some inspiration. So join us next podcast in which we have Martin Bittner, physician entrepreneur and founder of Arcturus, the world's first fully automated drug discovery platform based in Oxford, UK. And remember to follow us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and to catch our latest podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast provider that you're using. To get in touch with us, you can email us at physiciansofthebeatenpath at gmail.com or visit our website at potbppodcast.com. See you soon.